Take your Bibles, if you've got them, and turn with me to Titus chapter 3. Chapter 3 of the book of Titus. We're going to be looking at the end of this. If you're um, unfamiliar with the Bible, maybe uh, you've got one, but like Titus, where is that? That's in the T's, all right? Uh, I know they don't think it's organized that way, but towards the back of the New Testament, towards the back of the whole Bible, are this group of books, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, and Titus. We're in Titus, and we're going to finish up this short series, just three um, sermons on this short book. It's only three chapters in the gospel or in the New Testament, and uh, Paul's writing to a guy that's planting a church in one of the most difficult places. To plant. It was a place that was like Las Vegas. It was an island. There was all kinds of immorality there. There was um, a lot of people hostile to Christians and to people that were following Jesus. And Paul writes to this guy that's planting a church there and says, here are some things that I want you to know. I, I've read across this week um, an interesting quote that I want us to think about for a minute, and then we're going to dive right in and, and just follow this scripture today. I read this quote this week, and it, it's by a guy who was writing a book about how to live out your Christian faith on a college campus. And the question he asked was this. What do you do when you feel like you want your neighbor to go to hell? Now, we're in church, so people are like, that's a terrible question to ask. But he says that the reality is there are times when we get upset and angry and we don't like the people that are around us. He was specifically talking about on a college campus that sometimes you get a roommate or sometimes you are next to, you know, the room next to you or the people that you interact with in class or professor that just makes you angry and mad. And how do you deal with that when you have this desire to say, I don't know that I want those people. To come to Christ because I, I just don't like him. Now, there's biblical precedent for that. Does anybody remember there's a guy in the Bible who hated people so much he didn't want them to be uh, rescued by God? Anybody remember who that was? Jonah, right? Jonah was a guy that was, uh, what do you know about Jonah? Where did, what's famous about Jonah? Belly of a big fish, right? Whale, big fish, whatever it was. He's in the belly for a while. It's nasty, whatever's there, all right? And so Jonah's there, and he gets out, and he goes, and he finally says, all right, God, I'll do what you say. And he goes to Nineveh, which is this wicked city, and he proclaims God. And immediately upon proclaiming God, the king and everybody in town repents, gets in ashes, I mean, sackcloth and ashes, and repents and says, we're going to follow this God now. Thank you, Jonah, for coming. And you think, that's a great ending to the story. And then the last chapter of Jonah shows him out in the wilderness and he says to God, basically, I didn't want to go there, not because I was afraid of what they would do to me, because I didn't want to go there because I was afraid you would forgive them. That's not an example of how we're supposed to feel. Right. But sometimes it gets wearying when the culture seems to be set against you. With the way that we're portrayed in the media, I don't know if you've noticed this recently, but if a show or a movie has an active Christian and it's not made by a Christian company, but it's a Christians in a movie or a show, generally they're like the worst person on the show. They're like judgmental and dumb. Or, y'all know this, like when a tragedy happens, so a tornado comes through a community, they go out to interview people, they always find that guy. You know what I'm talking about? Like they'll go up, well, what do you, you think's happening? I goes, well, I'll tell you what happened. A tornado came through because of all the gays and Democrats that have been moving in. And you're like, where did they get that guy? Right? Like, I don't know that guy. Where, well, maybe I know a couple of those. But, like, that's not the normal, right? 
And it's easy to look and see how we're being depicted and think, man, I just wish they'd get it right. A lot of Christians are angry about the way we're presented. This isn't the whole truth, but there's this sense out there that they're tired of liberal professors rewriting history or activist judges redefining morality or liberal theologians rewriting the Bible. And you hear a guy like Christopher Hitchens, who's one of the most well-known or was one of the most well-known atheists, say this. Faith causes people to be more mean, more selfish, and perhaps above all, more stupid. And you hear that and you're like, (laughs) he's talking about me. So how do you react to that? The guy that wrote the book that had the quote in it was a guy named Randy Newman. And he says, many Christians appear angry in the media because they are angry. And then we never say it out loud, but we have this attitude of, well, you'll get yours one day. Don't worry, it's coming for you, buddy. You'll get yours. Anybody, feel, anybody tracking with me here? Or, okay, you're not, but that's okay. I'm just going to talk, all right? In Titus chapter 3, here's what Paul does. He's going to tell us that the gospel, and we're going to talk about that in depth a little bit today, the gospel reshapes how we feel about people who don't like us. People who dislike us, who misrepresent us, who persecute us. He's going to tell us, how do you deal with that person that is angry with you because of your faith? How do you deal with the government official who is doing things against your faith, who is misrepresenting your faith, that is making decisions that are counter to your faith? Here's what he says, Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Remind them. Now, quick question, who is them? Who's them? He's writing to Titus. Who's them? The church, right? The church. It's the church that he's pastoring. So these are the people who are in a church in Crete that is hostile to their faith, that is telling them that they're going to be persecuted if they believe in Jesus, that perhaps could be killed for their faith in Christ. They're going to be shunned from the marketplace. They're not going to be able to make a living. They may not be able to eat. They're going to have significant problems with their livelihood if they proclaim Christ. He says, remind them to be submissive to the rulers and authorities. Those are the rulers and authorities that are set against them, that are making laws against them. Be submissive to them, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of... Y'all didn't say that very loudly. To speak evil of no one. None. To avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, we've done this many, many times, all right? The word no one means what? means... No one. The word all means what? All, right? The point is that we are to be courteous to all. We are to be respectful of all. We are to be submissive to the rulers and authorities. We are to be obedient. We are to be ready for every good work to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy. All right, can we have a moment, just, just us? All right. I'm not sure this describes us. Like how we interact with those that don't agree with us. There's been this shift that as American, we've talked about this for the last few months of the summer, as America seems to be, it's already tilted and shifted more than we recognize. It's just now that the Christians are like, recognize, like, hey, they really don't kind of agree with us. As it's shifting that direction, there's become this anger where we've like, we've got to fight to get it back. And to fight to get it back, we've got to fight them and we've got to talk bad about them and we've got to let everybody know the deception that's happening there. And how evil they are. I don't see anywhere where Paul says that's our tactic. Paul basically says we've got to learn how to disagree without dishonoring. 
And that's difficult because in our culture, I'm not talking about Christian culture, I'm talking about American culture. The only way people seem to know how to disagree is to dishonor. And we're called to be different. I was thinking about what, what does that look like? What does it look like to disagree with this dishonoring? And I thought about a movie that was made last year. Um, got lots of Academy Award attention this last Oscars and um, tells the story of a guy that had to figure out how to disagree without dishonoring. Here's a picture um, from the movie. This is Selma, right? Selma tells the story. Who does it tell the story of? Martin Luther King Jr., right? And listen, he was a part of a group of people that um, African-Americans in America in the civil rights era, that they had every right to be angry about the way they were treating, the way things were happening. And yet he disagreed with what was happening, but he didn't dishonor. In fact, if you watch the movie, the whole movie, there's lots of him trying to say, listen, that's not how we're going to do this. That's not what we're going to do. That's not how we're going to engage. He was submissive and subversive at the same time because of the way he went about it. I thought about an event that happened this week in culture, and it seems like a strange kind of thing to talk about or to use as an illustration, but anybody know who this is? Who's that? It's Bernie Sanders, right? Okay, Bernie Sanders is running for president of the United States, okay? And the reason Bernie Sanders is running for president of the United States, he's running for the Democratic nomination for president of the United States because he feels like Hillary Clinton is too conservative. I mean, that's what he said. That's not me. I'm not doing political stuff here. He just says, and I, you may think Hillary Clinton's too conservative too. I'm just telling you that's his viewpoint, okay? Do you may know where he's speaking right here? Do you may see this online? Do you may know where he's speaking? Liberty University, all right? Here's what I will tell you. Liberty University, the largest evangelical Christian conservative university in America, founded by Jerry Falwell, okay, had Bernie Sanders to speak this week at their convocation, or not convocation, but like at a, it wasn't a chapel, it was a special event. Okay. Now, Bernie didn't come to, to he didn't come to preach. He came to have a political engagement discussion. Here's what I loved. I read an article out of a Virginia newspaper that says liberty shows other higher education facilities what it means to disagree with someone in an honorable way. So they invited Bernie Sanders and they had a conversation. This is an amazing thing. Have you all heard of these things? Like when you disagree, you've heard of these things called conversations. Like they happen. It's two people like not yelling at each other, discussing. And he said from the stage, I watched a lot of the speech. He said, I know you don't agree with me on this. He says, there are some things that I think we can agree on based on your faith that I know is dear to you. And he talked about taking care of children and, and doing some and like, yes, we do agree on that. He goes, I know you don't agree with me on this, but that doesn't mean we have to be mad at each other. And there was a great kind of reception from the whole... Liberty went out of their way to, to, to be honorable to him, allow him to speak his mind. Now, as you can imagine, I know this is going to be shocking to you, there were people that were mad at Liberty University for having this guy on campus because they're angry. And Paul says that's not how we're supposed to live. We're to live without dishonoring we can disagree. Now, here's the reason that we talk about all of that, because Paul's given this this whole statement of how we act. But then in verse three, he's going to turn the whole argument and remind us of the reason for that. In fact, here's what verse three starts with four. It's mind blowing, isn't it? 
Like I know y'all are excited about that. And then what he's saying is because he says, so do all that. Be submissive, be, be disagreeable, but without being um, dishonoring all of that because. And then he gives in the next few verses one of the simplest, best explanations of the gospel that you will find anywhere in Scripture. And basically what he's saying is that these commands, verses one and two, flow out of our understanding of what God has done for us, out of the declarations that have happened. It's not what we do these things that make us better and that God approves. It's that when we become aware of who we are in Christ, that's how we want to live. Martin Luther, a pastor that lived 500 years ago, said it this way. And I think we'll put this up. Imperatives always flow out of indicatives. Imperatives always flow out of indicatives. Now, I realize putting that on the screen, you feel like you've gone back to English class and something like this, right? Anybody remember this? How many of you? It's okay. We're going to have a little moment here. How many of you liked doing this? So let's get our hands up. That's right. That's right. All you sentence diagrammers out there, right? Raise your hands in the air. All right. This I I did not mind sentence diagramming. That will probably label me as a nerd, and that's okay. I'm fine with that. It brought order out of chaos. It brought some understanding out of what was happening. Right? That's exactly what most of you feel. Right? Some of you are going into conniptions right now, just having this on the screen. But if you remember back in the back when you were doing this kind of stuff in English class, there were imperatives and there were declarations or indicatives. Imperatives were the commands that God gives us or the commands that are given and indicatives are declarations of what he has done. So back to our statement from Martin Luther. Imperatives always flow out of indicatives. This is the simpler way to say that. Before the gospel tells us what to do, it tells us what God has done. Before he tells you to behave or become, it tells you to behold. Because in beholding is the way you become, and when you become, you'll behave. Beholding makes your heart become righteous, and when you become righteous, you do righteous. Naturally. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to divide this message into two parts, and then we're going to go through them. All right. The first part is this. We are going to talk about the indicative. And then we're going to ask what the imperative is that flows out of it. So back to verse three, it says four. And then it tells us this for we ourselves were once. What's that word? Foolish. Y'all know what that word means in the original language? It means foolish. All right. It means moronic. Actually, it means stupid. It means ignorant. It means warped. Literally, he says we have become spiritually moronic. We have become idiots. People that don't know any better. We have become spiritually stupid. The Apostle John says this. says, we began to love darkness rather than light. The light looked dark and the dark looked light. Right seemed wrong and wrong seemed right. Paul says in another letter in Romans 1.21, we became twisted in our minds and disordered in our emotions. Martin Luther paraphrased that to say we have become curved inward on ourselves. We have become fools. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to the person next to you, and I want you to say, you're a fool. Some of you have been waiting for this moment for a long time. You can't get in trouble for this. The pastor made me do it, right? 
Right. So turn to the person next to you and say, you are a fool. Some of you are hesitant. You're not going to get in trouble. Trust me. And now I want you to say to them again. And so am I. Heads nodding all over the place. Yes, you are. Right. Scripture says we are foolish. Then it says this. Disobedient. It's not just that we got curved in on ourselves and we that did not understand right from wrong. I mean, that's the part of foolish. We don't even understand right from wrong. Disobedient means even that stuff that we knew we should do, we didn't. Even the stuff we were aware we should do, we didn't. There was a, a guy that wrote about 50 years ago named Francis Schaeffer and he said in, in one of his talks, he was talking about, imagine if we walked around with a tape recorder. Now, I'm going to have to explain that to some of our younger people today. But uh, there used to be these. <laughs> imagine that you had an app on your phone. How would that be? All right. That recorded everything you said for your entire life. And when you got to heaven, the only thing God judged you on, the only thing God judged your acceptance into heaven on was whether or not you completely followed what you said you ought to do or other people ought to do in your life. Well, I should or I ought. Every single one of us would fail if that was our only standard. Because I don't know what yours is, but I know my own heart. And there are many times that I think, man, I really ought to. And then you just don't. Disobedient. Led astray. Now, here's what's behind that word. It's not only that we were spiritually foolish and we didn't understand what was right and wrong. It, it's not just that we, the things we knew we should do, we didn't do. It, it also says here that we wanted to be led in a place where we would be disobedient to God. That was the desire of our heart. It's not that we somehow accidentally got tricked into something. It's that we wanted to be tricked. People often blame their issues on other people or circumstances or situations. Sometimes you'll hear, I I just fell in with the wrong crowd. But here's the reality. The reason you fell in with the wrong crowd is because you like the wrong crowd better than the right one. Or you wouldn't have fallen in with the wrong crowd. You didn't stumble upon and fall suddenly into a group of people like, oh, now I'm in the wrong crowd. That's what you chose. And here's the more disheartening thing for us. We didn't just hang out with the wrong crowd. We are the wrong crowd. We were born with this disposition toward the wrong, which makes us so willing to be deceived by the enemy. If you want any proof of that, just go watch kids for a while. I got four. If anybody want to watch four, I mean, really, we could have a date night and y'all could watch our four. If anybody want, just watch kids. Here's the thing. I don't remember ever walking down the stairs on a random morning and seeing my 12-year-old or my 9-year-old or my 5-year-old or my 3-year-old sitting in their room, completely picked up of their own accord, bed made, sitting in the floor with their Bible open. It's like, I just need to get closer to Jesus today. Anybody ever seen that? I mean, like when they're kids. What I walked down is like... What happened to this room? We cleaned it five minutes ago. What have you done in five minutes? What do you mean you kicked your brother? Why did you kick your brother? Because he said your name weird? That doesn't make any sense at all. 
Like, not, not saying that that's relevant, but that was yesterday morning, all right? So, I mean, just, you kids have this desire to be led into the wrong thing. Nobody has to teach my kids how to lie. They just do. I didn't send them to camp disrespect to figure out how to do that. It's just natural. Our hearts want to be led astray. We're foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. You see, our separation from God left a hole in our heart. It left a, uh, one philosopher said, a vacuum that God only can fill. And as a result, what we do is we try to fill our lives and our hearts with stuff that was never intended to fill it. And we begin to suffocate ourselves, trying to fill it with pleasures and desires that only God was intended to fill. It's kind of like drowning. One of my fears in life is to drown. I don't, I don't like that thought at all, all right? And when you drown, you don't die from holding your breath. You die when you start breathing in the water. When you're not breathing in air, you have to breathe in something else. And so as a result, you open your mouth, and as you do, your lungs fills with water, and it chokes you in that moment. The same is true with our spiritual breath. When you are not breathing in the glory of God, you will find something else to breathe in. And when you do, it begins to smother you. Listen, the biggest lie of our culture is this, that rejecting God's law leads to freedom. It's exactly the opposite. When you reject God, you become addicted to slaves, to other passions, and they control you. It's like a fish who says, I don't want to be held back by the laws of this water. I want out of the water. And when they get out of the water on the beach or they get out of the water on the table, they die because they have given up the very thing they need. We become slaves to various passions and pleasures. It's the reason that a, a high school girl who has a desire for her heavenly father but tries to replace that with serial dating and always talking about guys and looking towards guys and having guys look at her. One of the college students, a guy that is lonely, fills it with, with things that he's looking at on the internet and things he's watching on television because he's trying to fill his life for something. It's the mom and dad who have lived their lives and don't really understand what God wants to do in the midst of them. And so they begin to pour everything they have into their kids and they worship their kids and what their kids are doing and where their kids are going. And as a result, they fill their lives with things that begin to choke them out. It's the absence of purpose and identity in Christ that creates a craving that enslaves you to your bodily desire. Your soul can't hold its breath. And you fill it with false idols that choke you when you think they're bringing you freedom. And then he says this. Passing our days. That's a, listen, listening part of it. This is just extra for you. That's one of the most terrifying phrases in all of scripture. Just passing our days. No meaning, no purpose. Just passing. In malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Seems like strong language, but here's the truth. When you do what I just mentioned, you start filling your life with other things or with other people. Whatever you put in the place of God, you inevitably end up hating when it disappoints you. 
Jonathan Edwards, a guy in America that preached a couple hundred years ago, says, what you idolize, inevitably you demonize. And it sounds weird to say that, but the thing is, you put so much weight on someone or something, and you think that's going to bring me fulfillment, that when it doesn't, you begin to hate. Uh, Think about it this way. Anybody ever seen a bridge like this out in the country somewhere? Maybe it's not covered, but it's a, an old bridge. It's not an a interstate that they're going to close everything in Nashville to fix in a weekend. It's a small bridge out in the middle of nowhere. And it says on there, weight limit, four tons. And what that basically means is if you're driving on just you and your neighbor in a Prius, you're going to be okay because it's not that heavy. I mean, somebody may have to push you, but it'll be okay. But if you're coming in a 18-wheeler filled with gold bars... It's not going to hold you. It's going to collapse and the weight is going to destroy the bridge. Same thing happens with your soul. When we put too much weight on someone or something and it collapses around us, it weighs down our souls. That's why some marriages that start out so promising end up drowning. Because they put too much weight on the other person. And you think, that's where I'm going to find fulfillment. That's where I'm going to find my hope. That's where I'm going to find love. That's where I'm going to be accepted. And when that person inevitably, and they will, disappoint you, when the, when the ooey-gooey feeling of infatuation fades and the reality of daily life sets in and you realize that person is just as disappointing to you as anything else, you despise it more because that person was supposed to be the one that was different. Or the mom and dad who are trying to fulfill all their kids' needs and all theirs with material stuff. And if I just had that newer car and I just had that better house and I just had, and if we could just, and you fill your lives with that stuff. And when it disappoints you and that new car that you love so much gets a ding on it and it's three years old and you're already thinking about the next upgrade, you become disappointed in yourself and the life you're living. Or when you idolize your family and you put so much emphasis on your family and, and doing all the things that a family is supposed to do and you end up putting the weight of what your responsibility to God is on your family, you become bitter and self-pitying when the family disappoints you, when the kids move away as they inevitably will do. When fractions happen, you, you get upset at people that are destroying your family. Anybody's coming against your family, you now hate, internally or externally. What you idolize, you demonize, because it can't bear the weight that God is supposed to bear in your life. You become guarded and hateful toward anyone that threatens it, and your soul shrivels. One of the best illustrations I can think about this is from something that I really do love and I really enjoy. But it's a movie trilogy that turned into a, what do they call it when there's six of them? Six of them. All right? It's this. All right? Anybody, anybody, how many of you have seen the movies or read the books, Lord of the Rings? All right, so who's this? Gollum, right? And uh, I'm going to spoil the books. They've been out for 75 years. Watch out. Uh Gollum, what was Gollum before he was Gollum? May I remember? He was a hobbit, right? What turned him into a Gollum? The ring. Or in the book, it's my precious, right? I would do the voice, but some of y'all would get freaked out by that, all right? So it's precious. And when J.R.R. Tolkien wrote this and published it, when he published the last one of it, he got a, a fan letter. Do y'all remember those things? Like people would write stuff? And so he got a fan letter mailed to him, and she said, I love the books, but I just found one thing unbelievable. She said, an evil lord would never put that much emphasis into a ring because it's vulnerable. 
And it would never do that. I don't find it believable at all. Now, um, <laughs> you kind of want to write the lady and go, you realize the stories about orcs and hobbits and towers of power and that's what you have trouble with, right? And J.R.R. Tolkien wrote, him, wrote her back. And this is what he said. It does make you vulnerable, but this is always what we do. We place all our hope and power in some external object, which is thus exposed to capture or destruction with disastrous results to oneself. He says, we are the dark Lord in his story. We put our hopes and our desires in something external instead of trusting in the one thing that we know to be true. Now think about what Paul's just described here. He says that we are foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to your passions, living our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. That's who you are. God has thousands of reasons to condemn us. You see, most of us think of ourselves as mostly good with a couple little bad spots here and there, a couple of rough edges that need to be sandpapered off. If I could just get that under control. But Scripture never teaches that we're mostly good with a couple of rough edges. Scripture teaches that sin has corrupted every portion of who we are and has killed us. Aren't you glad you came today? Well, isn't that exciting? Well, what did you talk about at church today? Well, we talked about eternal damnation and how we are deserving of that completely. How about you? How was yours? But here's the thing. We know this. And when people try to tell us it's different, we know this. Andy Stanley says it this way. He says, as we're growing older, sometimes our filter falters. We talked about that a little bit last week. But he said, what if, what if on the cell phone around your neck that had a recorder earlier, what if on that cell phone every thought that you were thinking was published and displayed for the world at the moment you thought it. You know your heart. And if you're here thinking, oh, it'd be great. I think people would love that. Then you're not being truthful with yourself. This is who we are. Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to your passions, living out our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Verse 4, but. Now that is a huge but. And I know how that sounds, but it's true. I mean, huge. We want, see, he gets all that stuff. We're foolish. We were, we were hated and hating. And he says, but. Sometimes we want to skip over that first part because we want to get to the gospel. We want to get to the good news. But you never appreciate truly where you came from until you understand where you came from. There, there was a, a guy who was asked one time, if you had an hour to spend with someone to tell them about Jesus, what would you do for the hour? How would you do it for an hour? And he said, I would spend 50 minutes convincing them of how bad they were. Because until you understand our sinfulness, we can never accept the graciousness of God. And here's the problem I think that happens in church sometimes is we forget how bad we are. We think we've been cleaned up and we're good and everybody around us is bad, but we're good. We just got those rough spots. We got to edge out and God continually says, no, you're still that person except for the grace of God that has changed you. You are still foolish and, and hated and hating and slaves to your own passions and desires. But here's the rest of that verse. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Because if you're just sitting there like, yeah, mm-hmm, 
Or if you're sitting there playing Angry Birds on your phone, shame on you. This is good news. This is shouting stuff, right? We were foolish. We were without hope. We were dead in our sins. But God, when the right time came, He saved us. You didn't do it. I didn't do it. According to this, we did all the sinning and God did all the saving. And that's it. You, you still don't get it. I'm getting a few more of you like, mm-hmm, that's good. That's good. Like, you don't get it. I know you don't get it because I've seen you more excited about this, about a stupid football game. Amen. <laughs> but when the goodness and the kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Oh, my goodness. You're dead. You don't get it. I'm, I'm, I may just stop. Because you're still sitting out there thinking, no, it's good, it's good, it's good stuff. It's not. It's earth-shattering, liberating, soul-freeing, best-news-ever kind of stuff. And you are sitting there like you just won your fantasy football game. Or you got a B on a test you were worried about. Some of you can't even exert that kind of energy. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appear, He saved us. And listen, if that doesn't get you excited, I I don't mean this any other way, but then I mean it. You need to check whether or not you've been saved by God. It's the best news that's ever been said in the history of the world. The best news that has ever been written in the history of the world. He says this, not, he saved us, not because, not because of works done by us and righteousness, but according to his own mercy, not because of anything you've done. He didn't look down on this earth and go, well, Lyle's a pretty good guy. Like, I mean, he's, he's pretty good. He's got a good family. He's, I don't think he's really ever done major stuff. I, you know what? I think I'll save him. He, he's good enough to get saved. No, nothing because of who you are or what you've done. There is no rhyme or reason to the fact that I should be saved except that God gave the invitation and I said yes. And that is it. That is as far as I go. He did the work. According to his mercy. You know what mercy is, right? It's when you don't get what you should. When you don't get the punishment that you should. Or put it another way, it's God withholding from us what we truly deserve. He goes on to say this. By the washing of regeneration. The picture there literally is being washed. It is literally being cleansed. And here's the crazy thing. It is being cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. The picture is in in, in the New Testament. Jesus tells the the lepers to wash and their their skin will be made whole. Or In the Old Testament, he tells Naaman to go wash. And when he comes out, it says it's like the skin of a baby. Baptism is a picture of this. You know, when we do baptism up here, and some of you have never been baptized before, and you follow Jesus Christ, but you've never followed in baptism, that's something you really need to think about. It's something that you need to do to be obedient to Him. But when we baptize you in the water up there, that is straight Goodlettsville tap water. Right? And it may or may not make you cleaner or dirtier when you go in it and come out. There's nothing magical about the water. What's magical is the showing that Christ has washed you 
clean by his. When we sing that song, blood of Jesus, the blood of Christ, it's kind of weird. A lot of churches don't want to sing that kind of stuff anymore. But we stick to it because scripture teaches us that is what makes us white as snow. That is what cleanses us. The regeneration that he talks about. Here's what's crazy about that is that was a word that, that, that a bunch of philosophers in ancient Greece made up to talk about reincarnation. Now, Paul's not talking about reincarnation, but Paul looks out there and it's like, what word fits best to what's happening here? It's like we've been completely reborn. So I'm going to take that word from the Greek philosophers and I'm going to put it here and say, it's not your reincarnation of you keep going in cycles until you get good enough that they let you go. That's not what we're talking about. What he says is that when Christ comes into your life, you have been completely reformed as a new person, a new birth. You are not you anymore. And he takes that word and says, we have been regenerated. Now, the, the philosophers are probably like, wait, Paul, that's our word. And he's like, I don't care. It's the truth of what God has done. God is redoing in us. Making us new. But it's not just that. This point says, here's what I love. The washing away of our sins makes us clean before God. It takes away the guilt. It takes away sin's presence in our life. But the regeneration gives us the power to live out of that new life in Christ. It is the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that has come into our lives, that has come into your life through the Holy Spirit. In fact, he says, by the washing of regeneration, and then the next verse is this. And the renewal of the Holy Spirit. We're new. The power that God will use to restore the entire earth is already at work in you. There is no hurt, no fear, no guilt, no corruption, nothing in your life that cannot be removed, redeemed, and healed. I don't don't think you heard that. There is no hurt, no fear, no guilt, no corruption, nothing in your life that cannot be removed, redeemed, or healed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, think about who God used to change the world. Peter was a coward. Right? I mean, every time it came, he stepped back. Before Christ was crucified, he denied him three times. Paul was not a nice person at all. When he was Saul, he was mean. And God changed them. And Peter stands up 40 days, 40 days after. He gets together with those people. He proclaims on the day of Pentecost, on the 50th day, he stands up and he says to them, this Jesus that you crucified, and you may kill me for saying this, I don't care. The coward has become bold. Paul, who was mean and mean-spirited, becomes the guy that wrote the chapter in the scripture that is used at almost every wedding I've ever been a part of. Listen, when you, if you would have known Saul, you would not want him writing script for your wedding. But Paul writes 1 Corinthians 13. They changed history. Here's the crazy thing. They had no more promising material to work with than you do. Made new with the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Next verse. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Whereas mercy is God not giving you what you deserve, grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. Look at these words. He poured out richly, lavishly, more than we can imagine, so that we might become heirs. In Christ, we get absolutely everything that God has to offer. I heard this illustration, and maybe you've heard it before too, about a guy that was really, really wealthy and 
Um, he was married and they had a child. And at the birth of their first child, it's supposedly a true story. Birth of the first child, uh, the wife died in labor. It was just him and the son. And he raised the son of his own, never remarried. His son was killed in a car accident when he was 17 years old. And the guy shortly thereafter died. He had nobody. No heirs. And so they had a public estate sale. There are people from all over that came to the estate sale. And they said, all right, we're ready to get the estate sale started. And he said, the first thing up is uh, this portrait. And they brought out a portrait. And it was a portrait of the son drawn uh, about a month before he was killed in the car accident. And he said, all right, who will give me what for this portrait? And people started kind of like, I don't, I don't really have a place to put the portrait of a guy I don't know. So it really didn't have anybody talking. And finally a servant that had worked at the house on the estate had said, I'll, I'll, I'll bid on the portrait. And he said, well, well, how much will you give? He goes, well, I mean, I know it meant a lot to him and, and uh, I don't have a whole lot to give, but I, I knew him and I'd like to, I'll, $50, $50, I'll, I'll bid $50. And the guy said, all right, $50, we got any other bids? 50 going once, 50 going twice. Sold $50, this portrait to the servant. Banged his gavel down, picked it up, banged his gavel down again and said, the auction is now over. They're like, what do you, what do you mean the auction's over? That, he had lots of stuff. And he said, let me read your, his will. And he opened it up and he said, the will says, whoever gets the son gets everything. Whoever gets the son gets everything. That is the decoration, the indicative of who God is in us. And then he just says, here's what you do with that. Two things and we're done. These will be quick. The first one is this. If you're an unbeliever here today, you've never given your heart and life to Jesus Christ. The imperative to the unbeliever is this. You must be born again. There is no hope outside of Jesus Christ. You're not going to find it in your friends. You're not going to find it in your school. You're not going to find it in your career. You're not going to find it in your family. You're not going to find it in your kids. You're not going to find it in money. You're not going to find it in drugs. You're not going to find it in any of that kind of stuff. There is no hope in any place but Jesus Christ. He's done all the work. It's done. It's completed. All you have to do is come to a place where you admit that first stuff we talked about, about how bad we are. This is not something I'm going to clean up. This is something only God can do. And you accept the forgiveness that he's already offering. And here's the imperative for believers. is to see the world through those lens. See the world through those lens. If you go back to verse 1 and 2 that we talked about. Verse 1 and 2, you see some things there that, that just show us what it does. Because of what Christ has done. That we are to be submissive to rulers, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle. And to show perfect courtesy. Just a few things I see in that. First of all, it means we're humble. God saved you. You didn't save yourself. He didn't save me because I was smarter or more moral. He saved me in spite of all of me. So we show humility to the world around us. We are no better than any single person that is there. There's a great old hymn. Um, it says, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood. Lose all their guilty stains. Love it. You don't sing it at, like, uh, a lot of times we, we used to sing it growing up at Lord's Supper time. But the second verse talks about the thief 
rejoice to hear of that fountain in his day. And the second part of that says, and now I rejoice the same because I am just like him and can go to the fountain the same. With humility, we say, we're not better than you. You're not better than us. We're all the same. We act in gentleness. They don't understand. We respond to people gently. God uses the gospel. We respond deeply compassionate towards others. He says that we are to show regard for all because they are dead like you were, but made in the image of God like you. The world starts to look different when you're deeply compassionate for people to come to Christ. And then finally, that we're ready to do good works, not because we have to, but because we want to, to glorify God and love others. Paul said these good works authenticate your faith to the outside world. Without these changes, can we say our faith is real? You can't have encountered the grace of God and still treat sin casually. You can't understand salvation and be lukewarm in how you see God. You can't have tasted of God's incredible grace and still be stingy, ungenerous, and unforgiving towards others. You just can't. So my question to you this morning is, do you need to give your life to Jesus Christ? Do you need to be born again? And if you have already, what is, difference has it made in your life? The whole book of Titus is about this idea that you're going to win the culture around you, not by committing to a war of words and dishonor. You're going to win it through a lifestyle of good works that points people to your heavenly father. Is that where you are? Let's pray together.